everyone looking forward to August? Only it's only like literally just a couple of months. Can you believe like uh, the freedom, freedom? I go day. through this. I go through this twice a year. Welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. I'm Lahiru. And I'm Stan. And today, yep, we're going to talk about humidity. Well, for everyone who actually doesn't know, and in actual fact, I didn't know either until literally the week before he left. <laughs> I was like, La, when am I going to meet up again to do our next episode? He's like, oh, Stan, I'm moving. I'm like, what do you mean you're moving? He goes, didn't I tell you I'm going to Broome for six months? And I think there were a couple of emojis there that were like, what? <laughs> and then he goes, oh, I'm sorry. I, didn't I tell you? I was like, no. So La is actually in Broome at the moment doing his sabbatical for six months. And what a wonderful place to go for a sabbatical. And uh, La and I actually met, uh, for, for those who don't know, La and I actually, La and I actually met uh, in Darwin in 2013 13, yeah. 14 yeah so i was a consultant there la was uh, doing his fellowship and broom if you don't know sort of exists on the same sort of um uh latitude and what that means is that uh, it's very tropical and very humid at the moment so i know that uh, all of us are very very cold at the moment but la is up there enjoying perfect weather but is humidity an issue up there at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I was born in the tropics, so I think humidity just doesn't affect me at all. But, you know, you walk outside and you start sweating. Now, in, interestingly, we'll go through this, but I was just looking up the relative humidity in Melbourne versus versus Broome. And it's actually during the daytime, it's actually about the same, around 40. It's about the same, the same. yes. Yeah, Correct. so. And I think it's really important to actually um, tell everyone why the relative humidity is the same. But uh, despite that, you know, the humidity itself could be different. And, yeah. you know, the terms of uh, absolute versus relative humidity, I think those are really interesting concepts. And so this was a, was this an MCQ question? I mean, was this a short answer question, La? It's, I mean, it's part of the syllabus, but it was a short answer question. I mean, I'm, I'm basing off some notes from a short answer question back in from 1994, but it's right. the principles in this uh I don't know the same principles. It's very finite what you need to know. So a really yes. good topic just to learn and just be done with really. And it's just really interesting because I mean, humidity affects everyone and the measurement type define, yeah, the measurement of it is really interesting and how it affects us as, as people is you know, in generally speaking is really interesting as well. Yep. And so the question from 1994 is compared to methods of measuring humidity. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> And I think with a question like that, uh, you do have to start off uh, with the definition, especially with something, you know, so conceptual as this. I, look, I, I don't think you always need to start off with a definition that defines very sort of common ideas, but this is a very specialized area and I think it deserves a definition. So what is your definition for humidity? Yeah, so really there's two definitions to talk about absolute humidity and relative humidity. But first of all, absolute humidity is really just the amount of water vapor that exists uh, in a given volume of gas. And so, you know, that, that's really just how much water vapor is present. Um, it doesn't depend on temperature and you can measure it in something like grams water per meter cubed or cubic meter, sorry, or milligrams water per liter. How's that different from relative humidity? 
Yeah, so relative humidity really just compares the absolute amount of hum humidity or water to the you know to the amount that would of water that would be in uh, you know volume of gas that's fully saturated at a given temperature. So you've got you know just the amount of water that's in in, in a given volume that's dry that's absolute humidity, but then you've got the amount of water compared to what could possibly be in that in that volume of gas at a given temperature. So relative humidity is a ratio, it's a percentage, and it's temperature dependent. And that's a really interesting point. Um, so go through, again, what are the units for absolute humidity versus <laughs> the units for relative humidity? Yeah, so you can use grams water per cubic meter or milligrams water per liter. And interestingly, they're both actually the same number when you think about it, because if you multiply one of them by a thousand, so, you know, you multiply milligrams water per liter by a thousand to get your cubic meter, then milligrams times a thousand equals grams. So the units are, the actual number is actually the same. So it doesn't matter too much. Um, now, when you, then when you, when you convert to relative humidity, it's just a ratio of these two humidity numbers, which becomes just a percentage. Great. And then um, the other the other sort of idea that a lot of people talk about is uh, saturated uh, gas. Yeah. And what does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, really, it's just the maximum amount of water vapor that can possibly be in that volume of gas at a given temperature. And, you know, as you can probably imagine, the more temperature increases, the more water you can actually get into that volume of gas. So fully saturated air at 37 degrees. So think of deep in your lungs, fully saturated air at 37 degrees, that's about 44 grams per cubic meter. Whereas say, you know, at just outside, fully saturated air at 20 degrees Celsius, that's probably only gonna contain maximum about 17 grams water per cubic meter. Now, I know for a fact that was an MCQ question. In yeah, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the fully saturated um, water vapor at 37 degrees, let everyone know what that number is again. Yeah, that's right. So at 20 degrees, it's 17. And 37 degrees Celsius, it's 44. And it's 44 grams um, of water per meters cubed. Yeah. Because they will try to trick you. They will mm. try to trick you and they will try to put 47 millimeters of mercury yeah, that's right. And there's a difference between partial pressure versus saturated um, or the amount of water vapor that uh, mm. is actually present. Because that's, one is talking about mass, one is talking about pressure. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, just as I was revising this, I was like, oh, what's that 47 number? And just remembering that the ideal, the alveolar gas equation really refers to, you know, millimeters mercury, that's 47. And you're going to have so many numbers just around your head and it's really good to make this connection now that it's 44 not 47 it's 44 grams water per per cubic meter versus 47 millimeters mercury um now what are the ways to measure um humidity yeah so i really find it interesting that you know our exam you know at, at least when i did it it often uh gets you to describe quite old instruments um, that you know we probably don't use now. I mean, these days, if you want to measure humidity, you've got special devices, electrical transducers, maybe even mass spectrometry, um, UV absorption spectroscopy, and you're not really going to be you know, needing to describe those in a lot of detail. Um, I mean, electrical transducers are probably easy enough to, you know, to describe because 
you've got you know probes is resistant and capacitance depends on the amount of water content so you can you can easily manipulate that to get a number but what is interesting is it really is interesting because there's you you could talk about these three different instruments so you've got your hair hygrometer the wet and dry bulb thermometer or hygrometer and Reynolds hygrometer, which is like the dew point system. Um, and if you think of the hair hygrometer, it really is based on the fact that you've got, you know, a, a, the principle that a, the hair gets longer as humidity rises. And so you could, you know, the increased length is due to this, you know, breakdown of hydrogen bonds um, with increased humidity, but then this could potentially be calibrated to a pointer to move over a scale uh, couple to a needle gauge, and then you can read this off that scale. So a very you know primitive way of doing it, but I, I guess reason reasonably accurate for ab absolute. Uh, can I just point out? Yeah. If you guys haven't noticed, have you seen Lars' hair, especially his <laughs> facial hair? Since he's moved up to Broome, it has grown so much longer than what I remember when you were back in Melbourne. Has this got so anything to do with humidity? <laughs> Mate, that's, this is humidity at work. This is science at work. You know what? It, the humidity causing laziness causing <laughs> me not to learn. That's what it is. So, yeah. Now, how, about the, um, how about the other types of uh, hygrometers that, uh, you, that you want to talk about? Yeah, so you've got your wet and dry bulb hygrometer. So this is really two thermometers. And one of them is a dry thermometer, and it just reads a temperature as normal. And then you've got the wet thermometer. And this one... Imagine a thermometer where the wick, where, where the bulb is sitting in a wet wick. And so that means that that wet you know, d d cloth that's surrounding the bulb is evaporating, causing the wet thermometer to cool down. So imagine the situation where you've got one dry, one wet. The wet thermometer is going to be a lower temperature due to evaporative cooling. And then the more, so the less humidity there is in the air, that means that there's going to be a greater amount of evaporation so one of those, so the cold, so the um, wet thermometer is going to have a decrease, a further decrease in temperature. So you can relate this change between the dry and the wet, the absolute difference in temperature, and you can relate it to a couple of tables or some tables, and that can give you your relative humidity. So that's, re that's really interesting. It's just a very simple mechanism knowing that if you've got a very dry atmosphere, you're going to get a greater degree of separation between the wet and dry thermometers, whereas very humid, hot, humid, really humid weather means that you're going to get less of a difference in temperature between those two thermometers. Yeah, and I think that's the point to make with the non-clemature. When we talk about the dry thermometer, mm. we're not saying that uh, it's in it's in an environment where it's completely dry. We're talking mm. about a thermometer that's in on in ambient temperature that's right isn't that right yeah because you're, yeah you're definitely just comparing a normal te te thermometer to the environment as it is versus one that's got a wick on it that's wet yeah yeah and so that uh, hypothetically you know if you had um an environment where you know you had 100 percent humidity you would expect the dry and the wet thermometer to read exactly the same exactly the same that's correct yeah yeah so now um the third one, what's the third type of hygrometer that's uh, important for us to know about? Yeah, so this one's the Reynolds hygrometer or dew point hygrometer. And so it's this principle that condensation occurs when the air is fully saturated at the temperature that it exists in. So imagine you've got this tube um, and so, so they usually have silver tube with ether and that temperature of that tube is monitored. 
you then can cause the tube to decrease in temperature just by blowing air through it. And that reduces the temperature by evaporation. evaporation. And once that temperature gets to a certain low level, then you'll see condensation. As soon as the condensation of the first dew appears or the dew point, that means that the air just around it has become fully saturated at that low temperature. So once you do that, again, you can look, at, look up a table and go, you know, the dew point temperature, uh, where, you know, we're, we're getting, so you've, you've dropped the temperature on that, in that tube, you get, uh, you know, condensation appear. And so at that temperature, you then go to a table and go, okay, well, you know, what is the um, absolute humidity at that level? So then you can easily calculate the relative humidity by just finding out what the saturated vapor pressure would be in the ambient temperatures or just taking the temperature, again, going to a table, finding out what the maximum amount of water vapor could be at that ambient temperature. And then you can also get relative humidity through that as well. Yeah. Now, um, I remember having to learn about, um, you know, the hair hygrometer and the wet and dry mm. bulb hygrometer. And this was about, uh, almost, what was it? 2008. So mm. yeah, 14, 13, 14 years ago. Mm. So I think back then, you know, things were black and white. We didn't have uh, color TVs back then. And, uh, you know, probably didn't, we didn't have electricity. I think nowadays you're talking about, there are different types of hygrometers that, that are uh, probably used, you know, sort of uh, thermal or resistive methods. And I would think that for the exam, you know, those would be the ones that uh, you'd probably have to know about rather than, rather than those ones there. I mean, what are your thoughts? I think because these, like, a, it seems like in this exam, we learn about a lot of very old systems. Like, you know, you, you learn about the um, Wheatstone Bridge uh, as a me method of amplification. And I, I think these, like the wet and dry and the dew point, they just exhibit really basic physics principles or measurement principles. And I think that's why it's important to know them. They're relatively, relatively easy to describe, therefore relatively easy to understand. But then to go to the next level of, you know, the resistance and you know mass spectrometry and stuff that, that just seems like the next level of um understanding which i don't think you know in your study for this exam i'm not, I'm not sure you're going to know but what, what what do you reckon stan like are there any other specific instruments out there these days that you could go through look um there's obviously the the new electrical ones that are out there and um i would think that uh for this exam, I, I would think that you would have to at least be familiar with how they work and at, at least understand, you know, the physics behind them. Mm. And uh, let, I mean, let me have a look at what they actually produced in, in some of the recent uh, measurement textbooks, because I think that's probably the most relevant in terms of what we need to know. And also understand that this question was asked in 1994. Mm. We have, we did, I mean, Lara and I both sort of learned it for our exams. But as far as I can sort of recall, I don't think, you know, hygrometers have been a question that has been asked uh, recently. But I would think that if an iteration of that question was to be asked and they did ask you about how humidity was measured, it is important to understand the mathematical concepts which La talked about. Um, but in terms of, you know, the ideas of the hair hygrometers or the wet and dry um, bulbs, it's a tough one. 
Mm. You know, uh, hopefully it's not too difficult to, you know, to sort of remember what Lars sort of talked about, but I don't think hopefully you don't need to know that much in those into too much detail. All right. Um, and I think like you also had some other things that you also wanted to sort of go through in terms of like the importance of the idea, which I sort of mentioned before about relative humidity. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was going through this, like, you know, besides the fact that you've got these two measurements, you know, what, what is the importance of it? And really, you know, a, a big part of the importance of relative humidity, for example, is, you know, weather forecasting really. So it, you know, having a high relative humidity just means that you you're getting very close to saturation or full saturation at a given temperature of the, of the air. Therefore it increases the likelihood that you're going to get some kind of precipitation. So really it's about weather forecasting. You might get increased chance of rain, fog, dew, whatever it is based on a few other things as well. And it's really interesting to read up on that. The fact that you might have a place like uh, Singapore or Broome where there's 100% humidity at times, but it doesn't rain because you need other weather conditions to cause that to happen. So I thought that was quite interesting. You need, you need a sudden change or a, a cold front coming in to cause rapid uh, movement of this air. So it you know, causes particles. But then for us, I think the biggest thing is that you know the change in temperature that's perceived based on relative humidity is interesting. So the fact that you, know, you will start to feel uh, more hot based on the fact that the humidity is quite high because you just don't have that evaporative cooling that might exist otherwise if you're in a dry climate. So yeah, having, you, you know, you definitely need some, you, you definitely need to have the evaporate, potential of evaporating uh, by having lower humidity or lower relative humidity to allow you to feel cooler. But then, it- I mean, that's such a good point. And I mean, I think that explains sort of the differences in terms of why you can have 40 degree days in Melbourne versus 40 degree days up in Broome or Darwin and feel absolutely different Mm. between those two days. Like um, up north, it can feel very oppressive. Mm. And as you talked about, because of that high humidity and that inability of, you know, your body to, um, you know, sweat and evaporate, you just feel this immense heat. And (laughs) very unlike Melbourne where, you know, at 40 degrees, you can, even though it feels hot, but you're, you're still able to sort of head out and, um, you know, do do a lot of things that you like to do. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's an interesting thing. There's more thermoregulation that once the ambient temperature rises above body temperature, the only way besides behavioral things like moving into the shade, the only way to get cooler is through evaporation or evaporative heat loss because, you know, your radiation conduction, convection is all gone as methods of producing heat. Yeah. Um, now, um, in terms of uh, importance of what we do, uh, what are some normal values in the airway? Yeah, so at the you know deep, deep, deeper within the lungs, at the say the carina and below, you've got fully saturated uh, water vapor. So the relative humidity is hundred. So you've got that forty-four grams per cubic meter, which is important to know. But you know also at different levels. So as you go further up, you might only get seventy-five percent saturation. So about thirty-three grams per meter cube. And there's a you know I guess there's a bit of a yeah, it's, it's not really that known about what is optimal. So, you know, the body as it is has those values, but when we're ventilating someone, this is where it might get a bit interesting. You know, the fact that, you know, you want, especially in the ICU context and for longer cases, you need some, or even short case, but you, you, you can't have zero humid, relative humidity. You can't have completely dry air because that inadequate humidification can lead to a lot of problems. You know, you've got all that, incredible amounts of water loss will occur 
If that occurs, you'll have problems with ciliary function, therefore your immune function. You can get you know, microatelectasis as well. And then your sputum, the, you know, the stuff that your lungs are trying to clear up will get really, really thick and might cause obstruction as well. And you might have body heat loss. So inadequate humidification in the clinical setting is, is a real problem. Um, then we go to the other aspect of it. So excessive humidification is also a problem because you can you know, increase the, in this increased water load can then also cause ciliary uh, degeneration. <laughs> it can, might cause pulmonary edema. You might you know, change the AA oxygen gradient. You might decrease the mechanics of the lung, like the vital capacity. Um, and also you might, you know, you might even decrease the hematocrit because now you're just getting so much water that's absorbed through the lungs as well. And so, you know, we have these methods where what would be really familiar to us is having that simple HME, that, you know, heat and moisture exchanger, the filter that we just put on the end of the tube. And that's just a passive device. It just means that you trap some humidity and it allows in a very, in a cheaper fashion, it's not, you know, super efficient. It doesn't, doesn't give you the optimal settings, but it gives you an adequate amount of humidification to keep your lungs working, working okay. Whereas the, you know, the actual mechanical, you know, blow through or sorry, blow by or bubble through uh, humidifiers, they are really efficient and they can give you, you know, really, really good levels of um, humidification. But again, there's not really that much evidence that this, this is much worse and it can be a cumbersome device to have connected to your system as well. Um, now, a really great article in Life in the Fast Lane, um, which is a great source for all this kind of information, but really the evidence um, like their, their little evidence summary of HME, the, the simple ones versus the you know, more complex devices, um, is, isn't that conclusive? So, you know, you need some kind of humidification device to decrease the chances of, you know, pneumonia and infections and mortality and, uh, you know, airway occlusion. But really these other, the heated devices and the HMEs aren't really proven to be more effective than one or the other. And there wasn't really a significant difference in, um, you know, between these two devices on mucus properties, cilia transport um, over 72 hours in these mechanically ventilated patients. Um, yeah, so I, I thought that was, that was really interesting because that's really where this comes back to in the clinical context. You need humidification. Lack of it causes a lot of problems. Too much of it can cause some problems and you just need an adequate amount. And the evidence shows that, you know, as long as you've got the HME on, which is what we do day to day, uh, your lung, your patient's lungs are going to be pretty okay. Yep. No, fantastic. Um, now, was there anything else like that you want to sort of go through? No, that's about it, really. I thought we just nice quick section to yeah. Summarize so just humidity. to summarize, um, so absolute humidity is literally the mass of water vapor in a volume of air, mm -hmm. and it's measured in terms of um, the the mass, so milligrams or grams in a volume. So whether that be liters or meters cube, and then relative humidity is the ratio of the absolute humidity um, to that required to saturate the air at that temperature. Okay. And it's um, often given as a percentage. And then the key number that you want to remember is that uh, the, the humidity, when you think about it in terms of, um, our airways at 37 degrees is going to be 44 grams per meters cube. And the ways that we measure humidity, so we've got the, so Lala talked about the hair hygrometer, wet and dry bulbs, and Reynolds uh, hygrometer. I think the important, thing, the important things with those ones are that uh, 
they would measure relative humidity and then you need a table to actually work out um, what the absolute humidity is. Right. Yeah. But then after that, you, you also have other more sort of modern hygrometers which can, which can actually measure absolute humidity. So I think Lars sort of mentioned, mentioned them in terms of uh, mass spectrometers um, and UV light absorption as well. Um, and also other forms of uh, transducers. Okay. So that would be the, yeah, that would be the headline summary of uh, what you need to know with regards to humidity. And let's see whether we've got any sort of questions in the chat that yeah. uh, we can sort of work through. A few questions, but a lot of them have been answered. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, here's one. Say you took water vapor in an enclosed jar at 20... Is it degrees with an absolute humidity of 17 grams per meter cubed? Uh, if you heated that jar to 37 degrees, the absolute humidity in the jar would still be 17. Yep, that's right. It isn't influenced by temperature. On the other hand, relative humidity would, would decrease from 100 to 38%. Yeah, that's a really good example um, if you want to have a read of that. So just to outline that again, you've got an enclosed jar with 17 grams per cubic meter at 20 degrees Celsius. You heated the jar to 37. Um, and so now your absolute humidity would fall because it previously was hundred percent. And then as you increase the temperature, now you've got more capacity to, you know, to, um, uh, hold humidity in the air. So the, you know, the, the, the saturated humidity, uh, could be 44. So the mats would be 17 divided by 44 equals 38%. Greatly little example there. It's a, interesting one isn't it because uh remember that when you talk about vapor vapor <laughs> is a substance in the gas phase that uh has to be sort of uh at equilibrium uh with its uh with its sort of liquid phase as well so um in other words in other words if you do increase the temperature um so in that example there, that example based, you know, was on the premise that what your water vapor doesn't change. In other words, your absolute humidity doesn't change. But I think that uh, in reality, if you were to increase your temperature, your absolute humidity will change with, um, with regards to water vapor. But I understand the premise of that uh, example there. Does that make sense um, to everyone? And does that make sense what I sort of described last? When yeah. we talk about water vapor, excellent. And so I think that's a nice, quick, quick little summary of humidity. Hopefully, we'll get a couple of marks on an MCQ or, a, or maybe a Viva question with that. Um, so I think no, it's great. I think we'll close off for there. Okay, thanks everyone for watching, and uh, yeah, really um, enjoyed having everyone here live. So yeah, please uh, share this with anyone who might be interested, and we'll see you again next time for another episode of Anesthesia Coffee Break. Thanks very much. See you next time.